Hello, Village Church. Bartlett, it is great to see you again. I don't think I've had the privilege of meeting Village Church East. Hello, my name is Chris. I've been able to teach at Village Church of Bartlett on a handful of occasions, and at least Bartlett for the next two weeks is stuck with me. How many times do you think you have heard that we are living in extraordinary times? Maybe you've heard unprecedented times, or troubled times, or crazy times, or challenging times, or times of uncertainty, or any derivation therein. Well, YouTuber Microsoft Sam noticed that companies and brands around when all of this coronavirus stuff hit, they felt they needed to say something about COVID-19. And he noticed that companies and brands, they were saying pretty much the same things across all of their commercials. And so every COVID-19 commercial, he argues, is exactly the same. And instead of arguing it, he actually just shows you by cutting them all together to show that they follow a very similar script. And I actually brought a two-minute clip of this YouTube video for you here. first opened our doors since 1926 since 1978 for 60 years for 75 years for over 80 years in 90 years over 100 years nationwide has been on your side restaurants have always been there for you nissan has been with you through thick and thin we will do what we've always done take care of people we're people 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 and family 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 families are families families even now especially now especially now right now now more than ever more than ever today more than ever today more than ever in times like this at times like these during these difficult times in these troubled times challenging times trying times in these times of uncertainty during this time of great uncertainty during these uncertain times during these uncertain times in uncertain times in uncertain times uncertain times unprecedented times unprecedented times unprecedented times this unprecedented moment in our history it's time of social distancing while things have slowed down as we turn more inside while the doors may be closed while the distance between us has gotten bigger the more we stay apart we still find ways to stay close even when we're apart. Even if we can't stand closer than six feet. We can all stay connected to work, school, and most importantly, to each other. There's still ways to touch each other. All without leaving the comfort and safety of your home. Without leaving the safety of your home. From home. 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 Your home. Get home. 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 That's the key. Buick and GMC are here to help. The video goes on for another two minutes to show how brands reassured us that they were there for us. But the thing that gets me about this clip is the over and over repetition of family, 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 family. I just find that quite funny, using the same verbiage to communicate. But even on watching this compilation video, it, it takes me back to just how crazy like March was how much fear there was just two or three months ago. 
But now it feels like many of us have adapted to reality. We have our masks, our socially distanced protocol. We have new ways of shopping. Our lives have just adapted. And to me, it feels like the most pressing question on our minds is not necessarily what is happening, but all right, what now? All right, so we've adapted, we figured this out, we understand kind of what's going on, we've learned about this virus, now what? All right, what's next? What do we do now? What does school look like in the fall? What does working and parenting look like, perhaps in the same space for some? What does my public-facing job look like, or search, uh, uh, searching for food or toilet paper look like, or care for relatives? What does that look like? What's coming next, perhaps? How do I adapt and move forward, or how can I be prepared? We made it here, but what's next? It's like we weathered something socially together. We weathered something culturally. We weathered something pretty politically insane. Dare I say it was unprecedented. But now we're in this weird in-between space where we're between now and whatever happens in the fall. And we're wondering, well, what do we do now? I think this kind of a feeling gives us a clue into the people of Israel. It gives us a clue through which we can view what is happening, what's going on in the people of Israel as they're just now leaving the Exodus. So if you've been following along in our journey through the book of Exodus, you know that at this point in the story, Israel isn't quite sure what's next. They've lived through some of the most insane, upside-down times. They're just the most backwards times. I mean, their god, Yahweh, went to war with the most powerful person on the planet, Pharaoh. And here's the thing, God actually won. The Egyptian ruler finally relented and let the people go. And so chapter 12 of Exodus closes with Israel on the move. They're grabbing their things and they are running as fast as possible away from Egypt. They plunder the Egyptians as a form of reparations. They take gold and jewelry and they scram as quick as possible. But then we click over into chapter 13 where suddenly the narrative pauses. The momentum of the story shifts as Moses gives us a curious explanation of feasts and ceremonies. And this feast day that he explains is essentially called crud. We've got to go. We don't have time to wait for the bread to rise. And so let's just grab our crackers and leave. Or what's shorter called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the ritual that Moses describes in the beginning of chapter 13 points to the future promises that they will inherit the land promised to their forefathers. And specifically, it says that one day they will have children who will possess their own land and they will be a blessing to the world. But then starting in verse 17, the narrative picks back up where it left off in chapter 12. It's like it just glosses over the the brief aside that Moses gives us in the beginning of chapter 13. We had this brief aside, but now we're back to joining Israel on the move, and they are fleeing Egypt. And this is the question on Israel's mind. What now? 
We've been freed. We've gone through this crazy ordeal. We saw the 10 plagues strike Egypt and spare us. What now? We are no longer slaves. What next? Where do we go? What are we going to have for food? What are we going to, where are we going to settle? How are we going to follow or know where we're going? What do we do now? So there's a style of storytelling called In Media's Res where the director starts a film by dropping you right away into the action. It literally means in the middle of things. This happens all the time in action movies where you are thrust right into the thick of it. And if you've ever seen, for example, Mission Impossible 3, it starts with Tom Cruise strapped to a chair and he's zapped awake by some electricity. And you hear Philip Seymour Hoffman saying, I just put an explosive charge in your head. Alarming, that would strike me awake. And then he demands of Tom, he says, where is the rabbit's foot? Now Tom looks just as confused as you or I at the start of this movie, uh, and he has no idea what's going on. And so you know that there's an explosive, that Tom is in dire straits, Philip seems like an absolute jerk, and all Philip wants is the rabbit's foot, whatever that is. We've just been dropped into it. There's no context, we just kind of have to figure it out as we go. And the movie takes a while to end up explaining what we see in the very first scene of the movie. Now, as weird as it sounds, that's what's going to happen in our text today. But with, admittedly, less explosives and less of Tom Cruise running. Because this passage that we're going to start, it seems pretty disconnected. It seems, it, it doesn't seem like there is a lot of links that are going on in between verses. But that's because our purpose statement, what's actually happening in this text, is sandwiched in the middle. And you'll see what we mean in a second. Moses is dropping us into the narrative in the middle of things. He thrusts us into the middle of what's going on. And Moses is pulling some kind of an MI3 or maybe it's the other way around. Who knows? But it takes some work for us to understand what God's actually doing here in this text. Now, as we jump into this text, I'll point out three different scenes to help us kind of have handles as to what's going on. So we're going to start in Exodus 13, verse 17. If you have your Bibles, grab them. Exodus 13, starting in verse 17. If not, it'll be over one of my shoulders. We'll read a whole section and then we'll talk about it. So here's scene one, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, see, we're jumping right in. God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God let people led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. That's the first scene. Here's the second scene. Verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. That's scene two. Now on to scene three. Verse 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. 
The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Now, if you were to read this together without even just thinking in terms of scenes, this is just a pretty crazy text, no matter actually how you come at it. It's not the strangest thing, admittedly, that we are going to see in the book of Exodus, fair warning to you, but this is just a plain old strange text. We've got God rerouting Israel, the people wanting battle, Moses carrying the bones of Joseph, a a pillar of cloud and fire. It's just kind of strange times at Fremont High here. So let's start again in scene one. And scene one starts in verse 17, and we're going to explore kind of what's going on. So let's pick it up again in verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. So here's the point of scene one. God understands. God understands. Did you notice that God specifically had them avoid the shortest and most direct route? He actually ends up taking them 200 miles out of their way to avoid the Philistines. They could have gotten to the promised land in much less time, but they'd have to go to war with the Philistines because surely the Philistines would not let Israel just go trampsing around in their land. And though Israel thought they were ready, God knew they weren't. They left Egypt ready to fight. They had their short swords, but God knew that at the first sign of battle, the people would turn back. They didn't have the stomach for war. So they would turn back and head back to Egypt and they would become slaves again. Their hearts couldn't handle it. They'd bail on their nation. They'd bail on their freedom. They'd bail on Moses. They'd bail on God. They'd abandon their future promise, everything that the Lord has been providing to them. And so God knows his people. He understands their heart. He gets that they can only handle so much. And they were just slaves yesterday. And so he doesn't want to overwhelm them. So he takes them by another way. Listen, what if this is how you understood God caring for his church? What if he's specifically rerouted when we wanted to go one way, but God brought us into a different future? And this isn't some like fantasy spiritual land where we're just kind of like seeing God underneath of every rock, but like what if seriously, If we in this church wanted to go one way and we felt the Lord prompting in a different way and so we followed and that was actually the Lord saving us and preparing us for something different. It might have been the harder way. It might have been the more difficult way, but it was the way that the Lord wanted us to travel in. Where God knows we may not be ready for battle yet. God knows we not be ready as a people for the trials that could be coming What if God knows that you're not ready yet for the trials, but he's leading you by a longer, different path? And you're frustrated. You're not sure why you're going on that path. You're not sure why these decisions are happening the way they are. You think God has abandoned you and left you and that he is just overlooking you when in fact he's protecting you. I think this can give us confidence. This can give us confidence that we're not living in defeat 
We're not living as abandoned people. We're not wandering the desert alone, just running from some foe we've just been freed from, that God is actually with us and that he's guiding us because God understands what his people need. So let's jump to scene two. Let's jump to scene two, starting in verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. So this is a strange thing to drop in the middle of the text, because now all of a sudden, Joseph interrupts this narrative. We haven't seen him since Genesis. In fact, these words come from the literal ending of Genesis. When Joseph makes his his family and extended family promise that his bones will not rest in Egypt, but will be taken with them to the promised land. These are the closing words of the book of Genesis. He makes them promise that they would eventually leave Egypt. And then when they do eventually leave Egypt to take the promised land, that he would go with them. And embedded in his request is a promise. Joseph says, God will visit you. God will visit you. Now, this is a curious thing for Moses to recall here because Moses is about as distant from uh, Joseph as I am from Shakespeare. So it's strange for Moses to all of a sudden, in the middle of this flight narrative, recall Joseph's words here. While everyone is scrambling to get things together, while they're on the move, while they're running from Egypt, while they are heading into an unknown journey, Moses makes sure to grab the bones of Joseph. Now, remember, Moses himself doesn't even have the full plan. He's in the dark just as much as everybody else. He kind of has a rough outline of what's coming next, but he doesn't specifically know. And you get the picture that Moses is clutching to Joseph's bones because they mean something to him and to the Hebrew people. And the key is in this phrase, God will surely visit you. God will surely visit you. This word visit is notoriously difficult for translators. It's used well over 300 times in the first Testament and it's translated entirely based on context. And you get meanings that range from God visiting people in a good way, that God is a temporary visitor, or that God is bringing wrath on people, and a whole host of meanings of this word. And so it's entirely translated based on context. And so this is why in my study, I looked at different translations just to kind of see what's happening here. And so the ESV translates this as God will visit you. The NET translates this as, God will surely attend to you. The NIV puts it like this, God will surely come to your aid. And the New American Standard Bible says, I think it gets the closest to what's actually happening here when it translates this as, God will surely take care of you. God will surely take care of you. And so the word visit in this context means more than just a temporary stay. It's talking about God's permanent, positive presence, about God's nearness. That God has never left Israel, he's never abandoned the Hebrew people, that when Moses quotes Joseph's words, he is actually invoking the promise that Joseph swore to them 
at the end of his life. Moses is invoking this as a promise. God, don't leave us, stay near to us, be with us, because we know that you have promised to visit and take care of us, and this reaches all the way back to Joseph himself. Now, I think this verse is the center of gravity for this passage as a whole. I think this is the, the, the hinge upon which this entire passage turns. Everything revolves around this. Just as the first scene of Mission Impossible 3 drops you into the middle of the story to only find out that they are later explaining what's going on in scene one, I think this portion, that God will surely take care of you, helps us understand what's happening when God reroutes Israel. It was based on his nearness. It was based on his permanent presence. It's based on his care that God is not going anywhere and he will let his people see difficulty in due time, but not before they're ready. So let's move to scene three. Starting in verse 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. 22. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart before the people. Now, Bible scholars are split as to the purpose of this pillar of fire and cloud. It's likely that while they were walking in the desert, the cloud was helpful for them to follow as it would block out the sun. And at night, it would uh, uh, be warm. The pillar of fire would be warmth for them so that they wouldn't freeze in 40 degree weather at night. And often when people read this text, we try to figure this out through the science of trying to figure out, is the pillar of fire, how did it happen? How did this pillar of cloud look? What did this mean? How do we like conceive of this? What would drawings look like? That kind of a thing. Um, how could God do this? And to be honest, your guess is as good as mine as to what this looked like. No one actually knows. The issue with the Bible is that it's often not concerned with the questions that we have. And so you likely won't get a satisfying answer from me or many other people as to what this specifically looked like. But here is the point that Moses draws out of here. This is an example of God's permanent visit. That this is an example of God's permanent visit. Notice verse 21. It says that the Lord went before them by day in a pillar. In a pillar. The point Moses is making is that God did not just send the pillar for them. He's not just providing the pillar for them, but it's actually his presence. His very presence is the provision. He is actually in the pillar among them, protecting them, warming them, cooling them down, leading them. God is with them in a physical sense. Now, at first, this seems very strange. Uh, but when we step back, we see that God has been gradually doing this kind of a thing ever since the beginning of creation. 
He's been making ways for him to be present among his people after he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. In the book of Exodus alone, this whole deliverance starts with a God in a burning bush to talk with Moses. And then this God is in the pillar of fire and cloud. And later we'll see him in the tabernacle and in the holy of holies. God's very presence is in and among his people. And for a while, this is where God makes his home among people. But eventually, Israel is conquered and taken away from the promised land, and they no longer have the tabernacle. They no longer have the Holy of Holies, which means in their minds, they're thinking that their God is gone. Their God is defeated. Their God cannot access them because for so long, he was in and around various things. He was situated to location or situated to an object. But then the book of Ezekiel shows up on the scene. And in Ezekiel 1, you get perhaps one of the strangest texts in the Bible where you have this guy standing on a river bed shore or a lake shore or something like that. He's standing on a beach and it's, things get downright bananas as thunder rolls in, as uh, there's birds and wheels and all kinds of manner of things. But the point of the opening of Ezekiel is that God is showing Ezekiel that even in exile, even though they are removed from their land, even though they are without the tabernacle, that God is with them even there. That God is with them even there. Now, fast forward a few hundred years to the birth of Jesus, and he's given the name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. God with us. Here on earth, the God-man Jesus, perfectly uniting God and humankind together in his person. And Jesus's ministry is all about bringing the kingdom of God to earth. And his miracles are little bursts of the kingdom here for us. He heals the blind person. That's a little moment of the kingdom here. And he keeps talking about the kingdom coming. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom here and now present with us. And then Jesus just keeps shifting the theology of his disciples when he tells them that after his crucifixion and resurrection, God will actually dwell inside of them and they will be reborn, that they will receive the Holy Spirit. And sure enough, after Jesus ascends to the Father, not long after, the disciples are in the upper room and tongues of fire fall upon their head and they receive the Holy Spirit. And that is the birth of the church. And then the church is talked about as the body of Christ. Now, often we hear that and we go, the body of Christ, cool. That's a really nice, like, cute, cutesy thought. But the Bible is serious. The church is the very body of Jesus. If believers have the spirit of Christ inside of them, then the church acts as the very bodily presence of Jesus in our neighborhood and in our society and in our schools and in our places of work. And one day... Jesus will return and renew the whole earth, finally bringing heaven in a permanent visit to earth and all creation will be restored. Which means, now follow me here, which means 
that when Moses is carrying the bones of Joseph out of Egypt, and when he invokes the promise that Joseph gave his people, that God will visit you or that God will take care of you, the ultimate fulfillment of that is not just in Exodus 13, but it's now for you. It's now for this church. It's now for our global church. It's now for the church of all times and ages and for what is to come. It's now. And the work of the church, the work of the church is to love God and love neighbor. It is to follow the winds of the Holy Spirit by participating in bringing renewal here and now, by continuing the very ministry of Jesus, by breaking in the kingdom in our spheres of influence, in our realms of influence. Isn't this what the world needs? Isn't this what the world needs? Isn't this what you're yearning for? And we can talk all day about how unprecedented these times are. And believe me, I'm with you. They totally are. Things are crazy. But this text actually reorients our vision. God understands. God takes care of his people. And God is with us. Isn't this what we need? Doesn't this change the way that we as a church love and serve our neighbors? That not only are we participating in the very story of the Exodus, but that story of the Exodus has a grander meta-narrative that we are caught up into. And so even the church, like village church, we can be together as one as we serve and love our community as one, and we can be seeing the inbreaking of the kingdom in every sphere of influence. Now, in order for this kind of change to take hold, we need a personal and corporate dimension. This needs to change me. In other words, this needs to change me before I can change anyone else. And I I think we can agree the world does not need a church that only believes in corporate transformation at the expense of the personal. I believe many of us have been harmed by church members who neglected personal transformation for corporate renewal. Said differently, there are people that we were hurt by and probably we have hurt when we did not walk the walk and when we did not follow the very Jesus we profess when we were more consumed with other people's morality or holiness or political transformation than it beginning here in us now. And so, this needs a personal and corporate dimension. Because when you neglect the corporate dimension and you only have the personal, you have an ineffective church. You have a church that just kind of gorges itself on theology and knowledge and self-community without expanding and spreading and inviting non-believers into our midst to love and care and serve. We need personal and corporate. Now, I love the way that Martin Luther King puts this. In his corporate fight for justice, it was all rooted in his personal conviction for the idea that God understood, that God actually cared, and that God was with him and them as a people. In a sermon titled, Pilgrimage to Nonviolence, King said, now this is a long quote, but it's really good, I promise, so stay with me. King says, 
The agonizing moments through which I have passed during the last few years have also drawn me closer to God. More than ever, more than ever before, I am convinced of the reality of a personal God. True, I have always believed in the personality of God, but in the past, the idea of a personal God was a little more than a metaphysical category that I found theologically and philosophically satisfying. AKA, I like the idea of God, but eh, you know. Now, it is a living reality that has been validated in the experiences of everyday life. God has been profoundly real to me in recent years. In the midst of outer dangers, I have felt an inner calm. In the midst of lonely days and dreary nights, I have heard an inner voice saying, Lo, I will be with you. When the chains of fear and the manacles of frustration have all but stymied my efforts, I have felt the power of God transforming the fatigue of despair into the buoyancy of hope. The buoyancy of hope. So he says, so in the truest sense of the word, God is a living God. This God both evokes prayer and answers prayers. We need a personal and corporate dimension. For the church, our corporate engagement, what this looks like beyond the walls of the church, needs to be driven by our personal renewal by how the Holy Spirit is changing and transforming us. And that means that we put away sin, as Colossians tells us, and we put on the likeness of Jesus. That means that we turn from the ways in which we are greedy, the ways in which we are angry at the people around us, the way in which we scoff and mock people on social media, the ways in which we, I mean, on and on and on it goes. It's personal renewal leading to communal transformation, to corporate renewal. Because as we take care of our own house, as we find ways for us to be devoted to Jesus, for us to recommit our lives to the work of pursuing and becoming like Jesus, we will begin to see, and I guarantee it, we will begin to see, and we have already seen, change in the communities around us. Which is where this is a really interesting opportunity for us in this COVID moment. Look, we're decentralized. We're not gathering in the main church building. And I know for many it's very difficult. And I totally, totally get that. But I'm the type of frustrating personality that, that sees the, per, the potential there. Friends, we have an opportunity before us. See, we can view even just this Sunday, even just the Sunday stream as a single person. We can watch it with just introspection and say, Lord, where are you changing me? Or we can gather with our family, or as we feel comfortable, we can gather with our community group and ask questions and connect and engage. Or we can send this stream to other people and share the message of what the Lord's doing at Village Church. There are so many ways in which we can use just this one opportunity for the good of people around us. Additionally, we have more options because people are very plain and apparent with their needs. We know the ways in which people are struggling. So what would it look like for you just to buy a gift for somebody in your community group or for a literal neighbor? 
I know that my wife and I have been doing that where we try to buy gifts for people and we've been slacking off the last little bit, but a friend literally today just dropped off a gift and it was totally unwarranted and we didn't deserve it and we haven't talked to them for a little while and it was such a warm welcome. What can that look like for you? Can you bake something? Can you cook something? Can you drop something off from Trader Joe's or Jewel or, you know, wherever you shop? How can you spread the love of Jesus? Because your personal conviction that God sees you, that God understands you, that God cares for you, and that God is with you, that spreads into your neighborhood. So I'll close once again with the words of Dr. King. When the chains of fear and the manacles of frustration have all but stymied my efforts, I have felt the power of God transforming the fatigue of despair into the buoyancy of hope. So, in the truest sense of the word, God is a living God.